As I was thinking about and prepping for this sermon, I was reminded of a story about the hymn writer Henry Light. Now, Henry Light uh, wrote many hymns. Maybe you've heard of Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken, amongst others. Uh, But he was a famous hymn writer. But growing up, he grew up, uh, his mother had passed away. And when his mother passed away, his father sent him to boarding school um, because essentially he didn't want to take care of him. Uh, And so he sent him to boarding school and he would write him letters on a regular basis. And he would sign those letters. Henry Light's father would, your uncle. He no longer would allow him, his son, to call him father. And yet it's interesting, uh, in these hymns that Henry Light writes, he always makes an emphasis to talk about God as his father. So today, uh, we're going to be talking about something that may be either difficult or confusing or challenging, that God would be our father. And at the deepest parts of us, what we are looking for is a father who would have our best interest, who loves us without qualification, who knows all of us, who sees all of us, and loves us. And yet, some of us maybe don't have that, or don't experience that, or maybe even have a good father, but to live up to what I've just described would be almost impossible, or too good to be true. And so today, this morning, we are going to ask the question, not only what would it be like that God would be our father, but what would it be like to be sons of this father? So three points today that I have. Um, First, the Christ we put on. Second, our attempts at being called by a different father And three, the adoption we receive from a true father. Now, if you'll go back with me to starting in verse 26, it says here, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, simply put, what Paul is trying to say right off the bat here is that if you are in Christ, then there is an intimacy that cannot be fathomed between you and the creator of the universe. Let me say that again. If you are in Christ, then there is an intimacy that you have that cannot be fathomed between you and the creator of all things. See, God, in creating mankind, it is safe to say, is the father of all people in a general sense, right? It's, it's commonplace to say that since God has created everything and has created all people, that he is father to all people in a general sense because he created everyone and everyone is made in the image of God. But it's also safe to say that Everyone is also in a covenantal relationship with God. That all of us, when we're in Christ, are in what we would call a covenant of grace. That we belong to God perfectly in a covenantal relationship. That that's the way that God has decided to mediate his relationship with us throughout history. 
But it's also safe to say that for those who are not in Christ, general, in this general sense, he is God, God is their father, and yet he, they are also in a covenantal relationship with him. But it's different because that covenant is not mediated by Christ. So in a sense, you could say that God is the father of all people. And yet in a different way, that fatherly uh, disposition toward them is different than those who are in Christ. But what Paul is talking about here for those who are in Christ is radically more significant than a general relationship between man and God. Because it goes one step further for Paul. Because not only are those who are in Christ, sons of God, full stop, that you are sons of God, that you belong to God, the creator of the universe, in perfect relationship with him, in perfect intimacy with him, that you are known by him and perfectly loved with him in Christ Jesus. But Paul decides to go one step further in verse 27. He says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. What does this mean? Well, I think some of us, at least when I was in middle school, thought that putting on Christ meant putting on a lot of Christian clothing that was often really tacky, uh, but it also had some type of pop culture reference to it. So some of us maybe wore uh, WWJD bracelets to, to show how uh, how much we were Christian in to our friends or to the world or whatever. Uh, my church, uh, I grew up going to a big mega church, and they had a coffee shop, but they also had a shop where they sold all sorts of Christian books and Christian clothing. And so if you were really cool in the youth group, then you had these different shirts that had various pop culture references with some sort of catchy Jesus phrase or something. So I had this green shirt with the uh, Apple logo on it. And all it said was, my bad, Eve. That's, that was essentially the epitome of what uh, we all thought was cool, wearing this sort of pop culture reference clothes, clothes. But that can't be what Paul is talking about here, right? I think that generally we may have confused some things, at least my middle school self did. No, what Paul is talking about is since you belong to this God, that you're in perfect relationship with him if you belong to Christ, that we get the safety and the security that often we do when we put on clothes or clothing, right? It's this sense of protection, right? What was the first instinct of Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden? It was to cover themselves up from their shame, from their sin. And yet what Paul is saying is that now that you are in Christ, you put on Christ. Your security, your safety, your provision is in Christ and you have literally put him on. It's a possession that Christ offers that you hold fast to him, that you belong to him, that you are safe in him. And this, this radical truth that he's just displayed to us, that we put on Christ, that we belong to this father, that we are now sons of God, is for those from every background 
and is a call to unity because of the shared experience that Christians have with one another of being in Christ. See, the the dispute here in Galatians, the problem here was that these Judaizers, these pharisaical teachers came into the church and started dividing people on whether they were Jewish or not. And that if you weren't Jewish, that you had to become Jewish in order to be a Christian, in order to be a better Christian than everyone else. And so what Paul says here in verse 28 is pressing right up against that. He's saying something has been greatly misunderstood and you are being taught all sorts of false heresies about what it looks like to be one, to be unified, to be together, to be a church. It says here in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, many people on various sides of the the theological spectrum have chosen to take this in a way as to say that Either our ethnicity doesn't matter, or our gender doesn't matter, or status isn't important. But the call here in the context is speaking to the beautiful community that God is creating in the church. So in one sense, it's true. There's no Jew nor Greek. There's no male nor female. But what he's speaking to is the broad diversity that all are equal and belong to Christ with God as their father, that that is the community that God is creating by his spirit. And yet often, we don't experience this for a number of reasons. Either it's because of our relationship with others, our relationship to sin, our struggle with our position or our security in Christ. And so we create different attempts at being called by a different father. It says here, starting in verse one, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What does he mean by these elementary principles? And how might we understand this sonship that we have because we belong to Christ? What Paul first wants to say, to remind the church of their position is the beauty of a changed status that is offered in the gospel. That you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to elementary principles. You belong as a son to God in Christ Jesus. And the illustration that Paul chooses to use here is the the change from being a slave to a child. Now, this book of Galatians references um, Abraham and the story of Abraham a number of times. And the significance of an heir 
is a problem even for um, even for Abraham. If you'll flip with me back to Genesis 15, this problem arises of who is going to inherit what Abraham has. Abraham does not have a son. He does not have an heir. Who will receive all of his benefits? It says here, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, a servant, not even his child, which was a big deal in the ancient world, to have an heir. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Everything that belongs to Christ is given to you by your heavenly father through Christ. That's the reminder. The reality, though, is oftentimes we choose to dismay our father and live into a past identity that is defined by what Paul calls elementary principles. But it really is, is we want a father or we want something that will give the importance to of a father that often leaves us wanting. What do I mean by that? See, the connection is to the slavery and that which the law brings. What Paul is saying, that if you're under the law, that you're stuck in your sin and are looking for any other place other than Christ to fulfill all that you could have, then you're enslaved to your own sin and you're enslaved to the law. You're stuck. And so the idea of being children is foreign to us because what we want or what we are often looking for to father us is either our sin or the law. And that manifests itself in a number of different ways, but the result is the same. We're stuck enslaved. We're stuck with our sin. And the way in which we live as slaves is defined by the things that we call father, that we give authority to, that we give our hearts to. So for some of us, that's our career or our job. We spend far too many hours at work obsessed with our performance of achieving a certain status. And we call that our father. But oftentimes our career leaves us exhausted or depressed 
or defeated. Or maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's the good desire to be in a relationship and yet we are obsessed with the idea of being with someone. Or maybe it's wealth or affirmation. It could be a number of things, but oftentimes what we really want as a father and yet what we decide to do is to turn our sin or our idols and give them the authority and the love and the desire that we often want from a father. That our lives as children are are enslaved to whatever in that moment we feel or want. And we feel stuck. There's nowhere to turn. There's nowhere to go. And yet the good news is that we receive adoption from a true father. See, while we call our idols to give us, give us safety and security and satisfaction that it never delivers on, Christ died so that we would be freed from the law. That we would be free from our sin. See, it's not simply that Christ died in our place and justified us. That is all true and worthy to be adorned. But I think what often we miss is that we're adopted. That we belong. That we're invited by a perfect father into a family that is imperfect, but it is perfectly loved. It's perfectly loved by our father. That we're adopted and called sons. That you belong perfectly, wholly, and fully to a father that is consistently seeking your good. That is consistently seeking to rid you of the idols that you often seek to call father. That is seeking your good. That listens to you, that hears you, that knows you. That is perfect. And yet this adoption also comes with a gift. You'll see here, starting in verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, the gift of adoption is the spirit. It's a triune activity, right? God sent his son in our place to be freed from our sin so that we might have a perfect father. And now we are given that spirit And now that spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Imagine with me for a moment having a father who always hears you perfectly. Who when you're looking for someone to talk to in your darkest hour that isn't busy on a phone call, 
or is it traveling or at work? Who hears you and who loves you and is completely attentive to you. And that by his spirit, we are even able to call out to this God and say, Abba, Father. It almost sounds too good to be true, and yet the good news this morning is that it is for you and I. And yet this goes all the way back to what Paul talked about in verse 26. It says here, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now many have seen this passage and chosen to use more broad language like children of God or sons and daughters or what have you. But the point of using sons here for all of us is that we share in the sonship of Christ. That Christ is the true son and we perfectly belong to him. It's not a dismissal of our gender. It's the affirmation that all that is Christ is ours. And that in the same way that that God calls Jesus son, we now inherit that because we are no longer slaves. We inherit all that is Christ. We share in the sonship of Christ by, our, by his spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. That you and I are sons of Jesus or sons of God because Jesus was perfect. That we have a perfect father because of his perfect son who loves us and seeks out our good. And that our heavenly father gives us an unfathomable inheritance by being sons in all that he has given to Christ. Um, there's often a clip that comes up uh, during the time of the Olympics. Um, if you're not familiar with the story, there's a runner and he's about to take off. This is the finals. This is for a medal. He's heavily favored. His, all his people are there. And as he takes off around the track within the first 15 feet, he just pulls his hamstring. He's done. And he starts to walk. And the TV broadcasters are talking about how he's, he's making his way back to the finish line. And there's some sort of noise around what is happening. And you see his father walk out onto the track with him. And they finish together. That's the kind of father we have. That when we could not walk ourselves to the finish line, that our heavenly father sought out our good and brought us to himself. That we might be sons of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that you sought out us even when we were estranged from yourself and all of our attempts to run from you, to sin against you, 
that through your son, you made us sons. We pray that as we go throughout this week, that we would be reminded of your goodness and your grace toward us. And that we would cry out, Abba, Father, by your spirit. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.